Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Aaron Gerds, an associate professor of medicine and a hematologist in Cleveland Clinic's Leukemia and Myeloid Disorders Program. He is here today to talk to us about the use of less intensive therapies for treating patients with acute myeloid leukemia. So welcome, Aaron. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Shepard. Well, appreciate you being here. So maybe to start, give us a little bit about your role at Cleveland Clinic. What do you do here? Yeah, so my main role is uh, seeing and taking care of patients with leukemia and myeloid disorders, as the title of our group suggests. Um, So I have a particular interest in treating patients with myeloid neoplasia, particularly myelofibrosis and the myeloproliferative neoplasms. That's where I spend most of my time, but certainly uh, my role kind of extends into other diseases as well. Within our group, we treat acute leukemias, chronic leukemias, um, as well as some uh, rare diseases, too, that are hematologic in origin. So we see the kind of the breadth of uh, hematologic uh, issues within our group. Uh, The other half of my job is I'm involved with clinical research. Um, So I help develop uh, some of the infrastructure for our cancer center, not only our Tazic Cancer Center, but also our Comprehensive Cancer Center, which we're a part of in partnering with university hospitals and Case Western Reserve University. You're a busy guy. (laughs) Yeah, it keeps me hopping. So today we're going to talk about a topic with acute myeloid leukemia, and we're going to talk about less intensive therapies and some some work that you had uh, had done with that and how less intensive therapies impact on mortality. So I guess just as a as as a backdrop because we have a variety of people listening what what would be considered less intensive therapies and we may talk about this a little bit later in terms of modern world and what that means but for the purposes of the study we're going to talk about what is what does less intensive therapy mean? Well for the longest time we really had two bins of therapy if you will for acute myeloid leukemia. So younger, quote unquote, fitter patients, you would consider intensive therapies. And everything that isn't intensive was considered less intensive. So it was kind of a a category by exclusion, if you will. So intensive therapies, we often think of seven plus three induction chemotherapy. So seven refers to seven days of continuous infusion of cytarabine. And the three is three days of anthracycline, like donorubicin. So 7 plus 3 has been around forever. So the first publication was in 1973. So we can think back to 1973. Other things that happened was the founding of the CN Tower. The foundation was put down. Uh, Pink Floyd's uh, um, albums uh, were were very, very popular. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon, I think, came out that year. And uh, Nixon uttered, I am not a crook. So that just puts this in context. And we've been doing 7 plus 3 for a very long time. And up until uh, 2017, it was the only, it was the standard uh, for intensive therapies. And everything that wasn't 7 plus 3 induction was considered less intensive. And really for the longest time, it was low-dose cytarabine. So that same infusional cytarabine we give in intensive, just given in smaller doses uh, uh, once a month uh, in continuous cycles. So then in, in later on, azacytidine came along, um, which had uh, a comparable intensity. So less intensive therapies you can deliver as an outpatient. Uh, in fact, low-dose cytarabine, patients give it to themselves at home even. The chemotherapy, they give it to them. They do their subcutaneous shots twice a day for 10 days, once a month. 
Um, azacitidine is generally given over a week once a month, but all outpatient therapies. Where intensive care is the nuclear option, right? We put people in the hospital, they get this intense chemo, they're there for a month, we blast all their bone marrow, not just the leukemia cells, but their whole counts go down. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, as you would imagine, it comes with risks of increased side effects and complications and potentially increased mortality. Where less intensive therapies, you know, those, those risks are perceivably less. And really the debate that's been ongoing, particularly in patients who are older, say over the age of 65, uh, which is the better approach? Do you take the thing that is more intensive, more likely to lead remission, but has a higher complication rate? Or do you do something that's a little gentler that maybe not hits the numbers of remissions, um, but is also less likely to run into a significant uh, complication in terms of morbidity and mortality. So when we think about mortality in the setting of this trial and, and really just big picture, and you've kind of alluded to this, mortality can be something bad from the treatment itself and mortality can be, I didn't effectively treat the disease and then yeah. the patient dies of their disease. So um, how do you balance that? What, how do you think that through? I think that that's the ultimate problem with all this, right? So we try to come up with surrogate markers. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of different cancers will have surrogate markers for the overall point of the whole thing is to have people live longer, right? So in leukemia, we use complete remission, meaning that the bone marrow is morphologically free from leukemia. We don't see it under a microscope, and also the patient's blood counts return to normal. So complete remission has been the quote unquote gold standard as a surrogate for overall survival. And this harkens back to the days of intensive therapy, where if people got into remission, they lived longer if they didn't get into a remission. The problem is, with these less intensive therapies, it sometimes is unclear if a remission is truly a surrogate for overall survival. Because you do have these trade-offs, as you mentioned, between toxicity and improved response rates in terms of remission rates. And so really, we, we lean, try to lean heavily on randomized trials in order to understand is this really making people's lives better? Because you can give all the chemotherapy in the world, you can get all the remissions in the world, but if a person at the end of the day doesn't live longer, then you're not achieving that particular goal. And that's notwithstanding the whole complication of quality of life too, um, which is also very important as, as a patient's age increases. And I guess when we think about that remission as a standard for success, I guess over time you get additional therapies. And so you know, once a patient has had their failure of their initial therapy, what does the world look like now in terms of our ability to sort of salvage that patient? It yeah, didn't so, exist when those original trials may have taken place. Yeah. So again, you know, 1973, we think about 7 plus 3 coming out. Uh, later on, we have Videza. And not a lot happened in acute leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, until 2017. So in 2017, Mitostorin was approved. So it was a flip basically a FLT3 inhibitor. It hits other things like KIT and other molecules as a dirty tiny tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but really it was a FLT3 inhibitor, and that was added on induction. And then after that, we've had a series of new approvals. Um, there's been uh, CPX351, also known as Vixios, uh, which is a liposomal version of 7 plus 3 that's better tolerated in older patients. Uh, and there's been targeted therapies such as IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors. There's other FLT3 inhibitors that have been approved. So there's been a series of, of, of other drugs approved mostly in that relapse refractory setting, altering the course of, the, of these patients' diseases. Similarly, there's been additional data coming out that uh, other lines of intensive therapies, given if a patient doesn't get into that initial remission, can also improve survival. So that it, it really kind of complicates the picture. And then we haven't even mentioned transplantation, which is, uh, for many patients, the only thing that could potentially cure their acute leukemia. 
which is a whole nother bag of uh, toxicities associated with the treatment, but also potential benefit in terms of long lasting, durable remissions. As a simple solid tumor guy, I'm happy to hear about FLT3 therapies because I guess I got to say it was a little maddening as a fellow knowing all the chromosomal abnormalities and then ultimately coming to the decision that we probably should give seven plus yeah. three. The, the nihilist to me still says says that, right? So you talk, we talk about, oh yeah, FLT3, FLT3 inhibitors, you know, which, which are great. Um, and we think about these things early on, but you know, everyone's really excited about the IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors, but it's a small part of the population, right? So, you know, we're talking five, 10, maybe 15% of patients, depending on what study you're looking at. So it's still a small fraction and you get these genomic reports, right? We do these multi-gene panels and you get back these gigantic reports and you're like, well, it can't target nothing here. Well, can't target nothing here. Uh, so it is still incredibly uh, frustrating to, to get these reports and not have something you can go after. All right. So, so great backdrop. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit. There was a long-term study that looked at this question about mortality related to less intensive therapies. So tell me a little bit about what the, the, the study was and what the aim was at the start. So this study was a, actually a really big effort uh, across a number of centers, including uh, Cleveland Clinic, where we all partnered together to do this big prospective cohort study. So ultimately, we also included a large retrospective cohort as well. So there was a, a kind of a time point where you look backwards and we look forwards. The backwards was kind of your standard AML group. We, we gathered a whole large group of patients and got the typical uh, outcomes, you know, uh, age, comorbidities, blood counts, treatments. The key with the prospective cohort was we were able to gather additional data, quality of life data. And interestingly, we also collected uh, perspective data. So the patient's perspective of the intensity of treatment, the patient's perspective of the chances of cure, as well as the treating physician's uh, perspective on these things. To me, that is the most interesting part of this study. Uh, not only were we able to look at your, our typical outcomes, remissions, survival, all those types of things, but what would people really expect to achieve with this therapy? So to me, that's the really interesting part. But this is a huge database. 2,000 patients were included in this analysis, both the retrospective and prospective part. So a really big group of patients followed for 11 years. So a, a long-term outcomes as well. And really the take-home points uh, center around this whole concept we have of older patients. And I, I gingerly say this term because uh, I know some people are offended when you use this word, but, and, and I don't mean to be ageist, but clearly uh, it is ch more challenging as an old, pa older patient gets to deliver intensive therapy. And when patients get over the age of 65, there's a debate what we should do. There are some in this debate that firmly say, we need to do non-intensive therapies. They should be getting Vidaza or azacitidine. They should be getting maybe azacitidine with combination with an inhibitor of some variety uh, and not doing induction. There are, but our data from this long-term experience showed that survival was actually better in older patients who got induction chemotherapy. And the take-home point there is if, if you have a patient in front of you who has acute myeloid leukemia, a new diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia, and they're a relatively fit person, say they are 70, but you know, they don't really have much of the other, they don't have liver disease or their kidneys are still there and intact. And they, you know, go for a bike ride twice a week and they're pretty fit folk. There would be an advantage for induction chemotherapy in those patients. And this is based on a prospective cohort, ob observational cohort. Now that's going to be fraught with bias, right? Because we're going to eyeball these patients and they pass the eyeball test for this. We're going to do that as opposed to doing less intensive therapy. This is not a randomized study, but you know, with this prospective cohort, it does suggest that patients who you think can undergo this, um, that, you know, there is a survival advantage there. And, and that is contrary to what some of the 
common wisdom is right now in the leukemia world. Um, certainly there is a faction who think that there, we should never offer anyone over the age of 65 intensive chemotherapy, the seven plus three. But, but uh, you know, there, there, there seems to be a role for this. It's an exceedingly random question. Why 65? It's arbitrary. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's one of these things that it starts and you can't stop it, right? So, you know, older analysis done, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, use this as an age cutoff for between younger patients and older patients. And it's just kind of stuck with us forever. You know, and not just in acute myeloid leukemia that we see this, this age pop up in transplant studies. It's just something that's kind of persisted within the, within the leukemia world as a age cutoff. Um, you know, there have been other uh, analyses that have tried to find a better age cutoff and maybe suggest 60. There's some sort of inflection point there. Others have suggested 70. So I guess, you know, it ends up being kind of the average anyways. But yeah, it is a purely arbitrary number. And I know in the field of geriatric oncology, there have been a lot of effort into, I mean, really most effort has gone into picking patients that might be able to tolerate chemotherapy, for yeah. instance. And really probably not enough in terms of once you decide to treat, what do you do about it? Are there similar tools that are used in the heme malignancies? There are quite a few. So uh, uh, one of our collaborators in this study developed something called the Transplant Comorbidity Index, uh, Mohamed Sarar. And that's been used for a very long time to understand what an individual's risk is undergoing transplantation of having a complication from the transplantation. So it's a, you look basically at all the patient's comorbidities liver function, kidney function, lung function, all these types of things, their histories, and you can come out with a risk. Um, that's been applied to leukemia patients getting intensive therapies, and it holds true. You can add in a few other factors like chromosomes uh, and the aggressiveness of the disease and come, even come up with a more comprehensive uh, prognostic indicator in trying to understand who should get intensive therapy and who should not by adding in not only patient-related factors, but disease-related factors. In fact, the same collaborative group that published this paper, we published this kind of comprehensive leukemia risk stratification earlier. Uh, that was a publication in JAMA Oncology a few years ago. Uh, but in this analysis, it seemed to be that the fitter a patient was, but also the higher risk of their disease, they also benefited more from this induction chemotherapy. Um, and this held true in patients not only over the age of 65, but over the age of 70 even. So by looking at comorbidities, Specifically, we were able to identify a group of patients that did benefit from induction chemotherapy versus less intensive therapies. And so, you know, AML tends to be a disease where people roll in, they're really sick, and you have to make some relatively fast decisions on, on treatment. So you mentioned chromosomal analysis. Are there any other biomarkers or any other tests that might be able to predict who really should get less intensive therapy? Yeah, the, there aren't. Any quick turnarounds on that, unfortunately. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what kind of steers us towards doing intensive therapy versus less intensive therapy is the good old-fashioned eyeball test. You walk in the room, you look at the patient, you're like, yeah, you're, you should not get induction chemotherapy. Or you walk in the room, you're like, you know what? I don't think this is a terrible idea. And that, overall, is what we do. Uh, it seems silly, antiquated, and completely subjective, and it is. But, you know, there isn't a better predictor beyond the eyeball test. We make these fancy models and we do all these things because we like to do publications and we got to do something, right? But at the end of the day, it's always the eyeball test. In terms of genomic markers, we do get things turned around quickly in some instances, which can change treatment. So the example, it would be FLT3 analysis. So we can get that back in less than 24 hours and that will help us determine if a patient is getting induction, uh, should we add mitostorin on top? Because if a FLT3 mutation is present, which is present in about a quarter of patients, 
uh, newly di with newly diagnosed AML, uh, we can then add the FLT3 inhibitor onto their treatment within the, under their induction treatment. The other one would be um, if they're one of those rare APL or acute promyelocytic leukemia patients, we can get that answer back quickly within 24 hours using a FISH or a PCR test uh, and switch and not do induction chemotherapy, but rather do ATRA and arsenic therapy. The last one that we try to get turned around quickly is this small group of patients called core binding factor AML. So this is inversion 16, translocation H21. And patients with those translocations, you would add gemtuzumab ogozomycin onto their 7 plus 3 induction. Uh, and that we can also get by fish testing turned around pretty quickly. So those would be the instances where genomics would change, but it doesn't tell you the difference between induction or intensive therapies and less intensive therapies. It's only things that we might add on to the intensive therapies to make them work better. Gotcha. Now, interesting, you, you mentioned about, um, in this study, patient perspectives, physician perspectives, anything that particularly stands out as something that, uh, that, yeah. that we should know about? So it's kind of interesting, and, and we haven't really sifted through this data in large amounts yet, but there, there's a couple of themes. There is a discordance between what patients think uh, and expect versus what their treating physician, because this is paired too, right? It was their doc and the patient. There's a discordance between what a patient expects and what a physician expects. And it, you know, a patient's uh, appreciation of how curable their disease is is often higher than what the doc might be thinking. But also if you look at the doc's impressions, it's often not concordant either with what published data is. So um, if the chromosomes and cytogenetics are available at, you know, roughly after the time of diagnosis, because you know, we were filling out these surveys roughly you know, two weeks after the patient was admitted. Um, so you, we did have the cytogenetic data back then in most instances. And uh, you, know, you get someone with a complex karyotype, which sounds bad, and it is. Um, and and you know, docs would say, you know, the chance of cure with chemotherapy might be 50-50. And you're like, yeah, that's probably not true uh, based on what we know about chromosomal abnormalities. Now, out of curiosity, how, you know, patients certainly walk away with, with higher expectations. They, they often think they'll be the 1% and, and makes good sense. I, I get that. How often do patients either come into clinic after you've gathered all of this and ask again about prognosis? Or how, how do you sort of approach once you have sort of the bigger picture? Because a lot of these discussions are happening real time and you may not have that. Uh, what does that look like? Oddly enough. It doesn't seem to come up much after the initial shock and awe, if you will. You know, and I think that's something that's unique to acute leukemia. So if a patient kind of goes the induction route, so they're, they get in the hospital, you walk in one day and say, okay, you have acute myeloleukemia, and we need to think about treatment. And, and you actually launch into treatment before you get all this genomic and chromosomal information back. Genetic analysis takes 10-ish business days to come back. Chromosomes right now are coming in about two weeks. Some centers can get them back in a week. Right now, we're averaging around two weeks uh, due to shortages in our lab uh, in terms of manpower. But you've already launched on induction chemotherapy at that point. So circling around to expectations is very difficult. And when this information comes back, it's usually a second conversation. Okay, we already did this. The cow is out of the barn. But here's now what we expect going forward, right? Uh, and, and for most patients, though, you're kind of framing that around the next steps. So I use the analogy of a board game. So we've, most of us have played shoots and ladders or Candyland, stuff like this, where everyone starts at the same spot on the, on the board. And there may be different paths to the finish, right? You might go through high dose RSC consolidation. You might have to go through transplantation to get to that finish, which is a cure. And 
the genomic information and chromosome information really tells us which path we should be taking for steps two, three, or four. The first step's always the same. We gotta get someone in remission, so we do the induction chemo. And that hasn't changed since 1973, in large part. But it's, it's more of trying to reframe that conversation of like, okay, we expect a decent chance of remission with this initial treatment, but in order to keep this away forever, we might have to do something differently down the road for steps two, three, or four. And then that's how I tend to frame these conversations. In patients getting less intensive therapy, you usually do have all this back because there's time. You got time to get the genomic information back to plan the strategy out a little bit better and kind of have those ongoing conversations. So, you know, the, the way you, you strategize how to have these discussions it definitely differs between intensive and less intensive therapies. What are the gaps? <laughs> there are lots of gaps. The fact that I've mentioned now 1973 for, I think, the fourth time uh, means we need better therapies. Really, that's it uh, at the end of the day. It, the treatments we have are great. And there have been a ton of advancements. Again, IDH inhibitors, FLT3 inhibitors, um, you know, liposomal 7 plus 3. It's all been steps moving forward, but it's still short. I, I also mentioned the annoyance of getting a genomic report and having nothing to target in it. So really thinking about different ways to target these diseases. I've also mentioned that there's a big push for triple therapies, where we are taking, say, a, a, a azacitidine backbone, adding in medications like uh, an IDH inhibitor plus maybe a BCL2 inhibitor and putting it all together in this new multi-drug package. The problem with a lot of these multi-drug packages is they're incredibly toxic, right? You know, you see severe adverse events ranging upwards of 60, 65% grade three, grade fours, which is really, really high for someone getting potentially non-curative therapy. And so we need more targeted therapies, therapies that are less toxic and Really, the future, too, I think, is lastly trying to harness the immune system. You know, CAR T cells, cellular therapies are all the rage. Uh, they are certainly the, the bell of the ball right now. I like to say that transplant was the original cellular therapy. It's been around for a long, long time, and it works, right? It can cure these patients. Um, but we need to make a better mousetrap, and I think cellular therapies are going to be the next thing where we can potentially cure these diseases, agnostic of mutations, uh, and, and lead to long-term outcomes that are really positive. Very good. Well, I appreciate all your insights today and thanks for being with us. It's been my pleasure, thank you. To make a direct online referral to our Toxic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.